Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday afternoon, and I uh, wasn't sure what I was going to do, but uh, Jonathan Adler approached me about doing something about his family and Rabbi Schwab. He, he was too modest to talk about his family. Uh, and I wouldn't ordinarily take on Rabbi Shimon Schwab. That's a big subject. And it's very complicated, and I don't want to go into all the details. But I do want to... This would be in in, uh, in honor of the upcoming uh, Shloshim of Jonathan's father recently passed away. That would be Mr. Ben Adler, who was an old Baltimore fixture. I mean, he was born in 1927, you know. And uh, like Noah saw new worlds, <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Born before the, the flood and, and lived after the flood. Uh, and his family was connected in interesting ways with Rabbi Schwab. And so I'm just going to shoot the bull today and to kind of free associate. And I can share with with you an unknown historical source. And uh, and I'll see how it goes. But uh, again, this is uh, being sponsored by the Adler family, uh, with whom I'm very close. I was not long ago in Teaneck. And uh, sadly lost his father uh, at an advanced age, um, not long ago, soon as coming to Shloshin. So enough of that. Let's get down right down to business. I'll tell you where I'm going. Uh, Jonathan's grandfather uh, was an, a named Nathan Adler, who was, uh, he, he, here is, trying to figure out how to locate this within a broad general history. Here's an unusual person who came to Baltimore in eight, early 1890s as a young boy, actually, a young teen. So uh, he had no, as we would say, he had no chinuch, you know, he had no, no uh, uh, education, yeshiva education, nothing like that. And for some reason or another, he came very from. That's what he wanted to do, and very into learning, even though he had no background in learning. So, but he pushed himself and apparently used German translations and things like that because uh, if you're talking about somebody who came here in 1892, so it's a very, into Baltimore, what I'm going to be talking about today is a Baltimore story, but I think it has wider uh, interest. Uh, the At that time, if you're talking about the 1890s and, and after, down to the First World War, so it's a very interesting period in the history of Baltimore and in American Jewry in general. Without going into a lot of details, we can simply say that up to the 1880s, it was the German Jews coming here, and they were American Jewry. And after the 1880s got more complicated because the East European Jews started coming here. And in the beginning was a tiny handful of, uh, you know, Sephardic or pseudo-Sephardic Jews, even in Baltimore, you know, tiny numbers. And then they got swamped by a quarter of a million American uh, uh, German Jews. And then they got swamped by about two million or so uh, Jews from Eastern Europe, Russian Jews, as they call them. When they say Russian Jews, they mean from the Russian Empire, which, as we know, is Poland... Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, plus you can throw the Galicianers also, even though technically they weren't part of, of Russia. So East European is a good word. Um, so Baltimore and country and other cities around America were in flux. Now, um, very briefly, in the religion department, when you came to America in the 1800s, it was 
tough simply because Parnosa. And everybody, you know, in America at that time, they had no Social Security, unemployment insurance, no safety net whatsoever. They sure didn't have Medicare or Medicaid or anything like that. And so if you run out of money, <laughs> you're toast. Now, that being the case, it was a big push that people should establish themselves in business-wise and get a, some money in the bank and so on and so forth. That's what America at that time. The German Jews who came here between the 1830s and 1880s uh, were traditional. A lot of them came from Bavaria, like the Adlers, southern Germany. Uh, but they weren't learned either, and most of them were not like our hero today. And therefore, they weren't self-driven and self-motivated. Uh, he actually became like a scholar, Thomas Hochum, eventually, uh, which is extremely unusual. It's an exception proves the case. Most of them just Americanized. And little by little drifted out into reform. Uh, because reform Judaism made a, a lot of sense in a 19th century American context. On a lot of levels. Now, uh, that's a subject to go into another time. Now, uh, so if you came to Baltimore in 1880, I just want to make this point. You would find an unusual situation which would make Baltimore different than many other towns. And that is you'd have 10 or 20, about 20,000 Jews here approximately, which is a sizable community. The overwhelming majority of what you call German Jews of one sort or another, using the term Germany as the Central Europe, and, you know, Bohemia, Holland, and so forth. Um, but, whereas in other towns by 1880, or the 1880s, everything, all the Orthodox collapses, and all the synagogues across America, it's really remarkable, one after another, uh, becomes reformed. Even shows that were started very, very orthodox. It doesn't take too long, and they flip. That's what happened. I mean, I could go down and, and, and name shoal after shoal, from, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. It's quite remarkable. Uh, Baltimore was a little different because you did have some Jews over here, uh, a sizable minority, shall I say, who did not go reform. And they established orthodox synagogues. In other words, German-American consciously Orthodox synagogues going against the stream. One was called the Chizig and one was called the Sheriff Israel. So these were German Jews who by the time you get to the 1880s and so forth, they've already been in America a long time. Their children are growing up. A lot of children are Americanized and so on and so forth. In spite of what I just said, they keep Shabbos in some fashion or another. They keep Kashras. Tars and Mishpacha, I don't know, but you know, the Shuls had mikvahs. And that's what considered the acme of orthodoxy once upon a time. Now, um, then, but everywhere else, it wasn't like that. All across America, they switched to reform. Then, so in other words, the reform in the 1880s could really pat themselves on the back that they have totally triumphed. I mean, one or two little shows in Baltimore don't mean anything. And maybe that's true in a couple other towns as well, but Derek Claw, they sustained like a gigantic complete victory. Then, to their disappointment, you know, a million, two million Jews come from Eastern Europe, Yiddish-speaking. They're certainly not interested in reform. I didn't say they're all from. That's certainly not the case. But to the degree anybody was interested in religion, it was going to be the Eastern European Orthodox religion, which wasn't as from as you imagine, but certainly was, you know, very far from reform. So, uh, that's just the interesting uh, dynamics uh, of that time. And Therefore, when, when he came to America, Nathan Adler, in the early 1890s, the city's going through a transformation. There are 
the German Jewish community, that's one thing. And then there's what they call the Russian Jews, which they meant the Eastern European Jews. That's another thing. And the two didn't really mix so well. And uh, in fact, the German Jews all moved out of the old neighborhoods and moved to new neighborhoods, including the Orthodox. And the Russian Jews, they came and took over the old neighborhoods, which are near the harbor. That is the history of Baltimore, basically. Okay? All of a sudden, you started having shtibbles, Yiddish-speaking shoals, Rabbonim, you know, like Eastern European shtetl, as you had all across America, because that thing hit everybody. But you and I know, looking with hindsight, it was an episode. From the 1880s and 90s down to the 1920s or so, 30s, the old generation was there, but their kids didn't have any chinuch, and then they all drifted away. That's what happened. All drifted away. And what I mean by drifting away, in the case of Baltimore, means they stopped being observant. They actually, interestingly, continued to go to Orthodox synagogues, but they didn't keep anything. That's the character, the semi-traditional character of Baltimore Jewry. Now, the two German shoals, as I said, were A and B, were not quite the same. One was more, more from than the other, even though, you know, you had from Jews in both. But we're talking about America, American Jews. They may have come over from Germany, or their parents came over from Bavaria. That's true. But they were already Americanized, you see? And you can understand that if in the 1880s or 1890s you still had somebody born in this country or living here who still was a Shomer Shabbos to any degree, that's amazing. You get it? I don't say the guy has to be a Talmud Chacham. That, that, Zelo Baba Cheshwin. But if you can, if you can, you just tell me the person keeps kosher and keeps Shabbos, that's quite amazing. Okay? As I always say, it's harder to keep kosher milk at that time than it is to keep Chalv Yisrael today. It's harder to get really, truly kosher meat at that time than it is to get Glock kosher today. You have to understand that. Now, uh, so therefore, our hero, uh, one of two heroes today, uh, Nathan had came here, and since America didn't give you anything, you had to go into business. So a lot of people didn't go to high school and that sort of thing. As young teens, they went out to get money. The same thing is happening today. There's a lot of people who don't make it through high school, this and that and the other, and many of them are going to make more money than you and I. Okay, because they're going to go into this business. So basically, high school will be a waste of time from the secular perspective. Uh, they're going to some kind of a business, and they'll, you know, do their trial and error, and they'll have their hard knocks. And after a couple of years, they'll figure out what to do, and then they'll be successful. If your goal in life is to make money. You know what I'm saying? So that's what it was in America at that time. Baltimore had an interesting economic profile because the... German Jews who came here by the middle of the 1800s or after the Civil War tended to go into uh, clothing manufacturers. Hats especially, uh, suits, shoes, and that sort of thing. The German Jews who came here, they set up these factories where they mass-produced clothing. That's one way of making a living. And they were quite successful at it. And one of the reasons they were successful, one of the reasons, not the only reason, is that after the Civil War, even before, all once upon a time in America, not today, all these towns throughout the South and the Midwest all had one or two Jewish stores in them, or three or four. I mean, little places you never heard of. I myself have seen in my lifetime, like Eastern Shore, Maryland, you know, I used to go these little garnished towns, you see Hoffman's uh, shoe store, or uh, Finkelstein's uh, shirts, or things like that. So it'd be, what it means is, that when the German Jews came here, and later some of the Russian Jews, 
They said, why should I be in Baltimore or New York and work in a sweatshop? I'll go out to who, who knows, you know, Podunk, nowhere, nowheresville out in the Midwest or the South, where there are no other hidden, and I'll open the only shoe store in town. So you won't become a millionaire, but you can prosper. I'll open the only store that sells, you know, suits or hats or ties or this, that, and the other. And that's what they did. So that means it was just automatically built in to the American economy at that time, in the Baltimore economy, a network of potential buyers for your manufactured products. So in plain English, let's say I'm, I have a store, uh, a factory that makes straw hats, which was very popular at that time among the German Jews as a manufacturing item. How many hats are you going to make? Well, I mean, how many can I sell? Now, locally, you can sell so and so much. But if you go throughout Virginia and North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, Alabama, Nebraska, you know what I mean? You go out there, there's lots of these little stores and everybody can order a couple of hats. And next thing you know, whole bunch of small orders equal to one big order and even more. So one way of making a living that the German Jews did, these are not people going to college, mind you, was to go into sales business in which, you know, you make your commission and so on and so forth. And depending how good you are and how much energy you have, and et cetera, et cetera, that's how you make your living. So it requires hitting the road and using the railroad system that was in, in America at that time and going from town to town. And every time you go to a little town, you know, I guess you know beforehand, you look up the local Jewish merchant, you know what I'm saying? Like I say, if you're in the shoe business, you find who's got the shoe stores, you know? And you show them your catalog and this and that, the other, and they make an order. And if you make a good enough order through a bunch of... Well, you get what I'm saying. So that's what he did. Um, I don't know exactly. It was something in textiles. And he was a from guy, you know, so he brought kosher food with him and all the rest of it. I could go into... I don't want to go into those details. Suffice it to say, Dave was a very religious guy. Eventually got married uh, to a girl from the South. <laughs> you know, one of the few Orthodox families down in Georgia. And that's what they did. They lived in Baltimore. And he joined the frummer of the two shoals, the two German shoals, because he's German himself. And he was a from guy. And at, at that time, it was called Sheriff's Israel. It's still there today, for those of you from outside of Baltimore. And uh, that shoal was in the first of three locations. Now it's in the third. There was that one, and then later they made another one, and then they made the current one. Uh, for those of you who are Baltimoreans, First of all, Green Street, and then it was a McCullough Street, and now it's a Glen Avenue. That's how that goes. And that that was a show that for a long time was started in the going back to. Uh, it's not clear, hundred percent, Rabbi Rice's time or something like that. Uh, not exactly, but whatever. And uh, the it, two minions combined, or whatever. And it was a from show, meaning everybody was Shomer Shabbos, which was most unusual. Okay, most unusual. And uh, the Strauss family, they, they ran the place, as had to be done in those days. And so he joins this show. I think he was related to the people there. It's all Bavarian Jews. Get it? You know, everybody's a cousin of somebody They're in, in some second or third way. That's that's how America was at that time. And uh, that's and, and he was with the show. Now, that show, when it started in 1879, did not want a rabbi. Because all the rabbis that came over from Europe ended up getting spoiled. And they led the congregation to the left. So it's a funny situation. The Balabatim were afraid to get a rabbi. You understand? Eventually, they got somebody from the Hildesheimer Seminary, uh, Rabbi Schaffer. And uh, without going into details, he was a big Zionist and so forth. He's a from guy. 
And I would tell you, he was married to the daughter of uh, one of the Gedoli Lito. It's interesting. He he himself was from Latvia, from Kurland, but he yekishized himself. He was married to one of the Gedoli Ador's daughter, uh, Alexander Moshe Lapidus of Versailles, if you know who that was. He's like a buddy of Richard Salanter. And, uh, but he was a modern, you know, guy, very from, modern guy. And the idea was, can you have, shall we say, Hersheyan orthodoxy in America? Well, that's not really true. You know, he wasn't a Hersheyan. Uh, that's something that goes along with Breuer's and all the rest. We'll talk about it in a second. They meant modern orthodox, but, you know, genuinely orthodox. Okay? You totally accept modern American culture, but at the same time, you insist on Shemir Samitzvahs. That's that's what that meant. Uh, it did not have the one vital component that made Hersheyanism work in Germany, and that's a day school. If Hersh didn't have a school over there, he'd be a failure. Uh, people don't realize that. He realized it. That's why I think it's famous. He made the school before he built up the shul. Um, he knew it. And we know it today, looking back with hindsight. But at that time, they didn't see it that way a lot of places, and not in Baltimore, not even the religious shows. So all the kids went to public school and that sort of thing, and they had, you know, an afternoon Talmud Torah and that kind of business, which is never great. Now, that's the world we're talking about, okay? Uh, therefore, in, over the course of time, even though this show was pretty strictly orthodox, but the younger generation, all the rest of it, got drifted away now, when I say drifted away, I don't mean they became not from exactly and all that, but they want to push things to the left. It's only natural. I'll just give you one example of many. Mick Stancy. You know, do you want to have a social affair? Everybody does. You know, what are we supposed to do? If you don't have any youth groups, and youth groups are without, without boys and girls, not a youth group. And things, let it be a Jewish theme. You get it? You, you know, they're, they're not sensitive. Unless you have a certain kind of, you, you don't see what's wrong with that. Matter of fact, it's the opposite. It should be good. Because you're promoting Jewish in marriage, you get what I'm saying, uh, and so that was Baltimore at that time. Now, as I said, at the same time, the East European Jews came here and like flooded the place, so it went from twenty thousand to probably forty, fifty thousand, something like that, and maybe sixty thousand, and uh, I would say, they, they, and you had Shvatim. What happened was. And this is a part of the story I wanted to mention today with Rabbi Shvat. What happened was that you didn't have a, a, an organized orthodoxy in Baltimore. You had a cluster of different groups. The Sheriff's Israel Congregation that I just mentioned was one group. The other Yekeshishol, which was more American, the Chizikimuna, was like another group, I would say left-wing orthodox. Uh, there were uh, Litvish Rabbonim in here. There were these Chabad types here. Everybody did their own thing. You understand? It wasn't organized. And I would say in general, the period I'm talking about was not one in which there had been consciousness raising, I'm using a Marxist term, uh, among orthodoxy, as has happened in my lifetime. Okay? Uh, Jews didn't think of themselves necessarily as a member of an orthodoxy. They thought some of us as Jews, more religious, more uh, yeah, being on a spectrum, not a distinct group. Okay? Now, um, and that's how things were at that time. <sighs> there was one of the Eastern European rabbis, Rabbi Schwartz, who understood that without Chinuch, it's, it's all going to fade away. And he was popular in his day, but not popular enough. 
he he wanted to make a yeshiva and all the rest of it. At the end, he was the most he was able to do was make a a day school up to sixth grade uh, in Yiddish, which uh, you know, it's a, let's put it this way: by making the, the schools in Yiddish, the German Jews ain't going to send their kids over there because that's not their language. It was a strange. I you'll tell me should go because it's from. And those that have is a hard sell to do. It's a hard sell. So, this is America in the early 20th century. Uh, 1900, 1914. And then during the First World War and after the First World War. And so this show, which was uh, the most Americanized of the Orthodox synagogues. If you came to Baltimore, let's say in 1920 or so, you see a whole bunch of shoals people who, you know, just came over or still Yiddish-speaking, they have all that culture and things like that. They're trying to reestablish to some degree or another the Russian Judaism, the Polish Judaism, they, they head over there and try to replant it over here. Uh, but if you went to the Sheriff's Israel, at the time I'm talking about, uh, you had a couple old-timers from Germany, but you had a lot of young people that were American. Now, they included people who were personally very observant, and they also included people that were not quite so observant. They were just observant, you know? And that's the way it went. And the rabbi there, Rabbi Schaffer, he he got old and he, you know, I would say after 1915, 1918, he wasn't able to do anything. Not really. Uh, it's a shame, but that's what happened. And so the place, like, drifted. You understand? It drifted. Now, I told you before that if you know the history in Baltimore, the, the Sheriff's had three locations. One, two, and three. The first one was all the way downtown in West Baltimore called uh, Green Street. And then uh, President Street, whatever it was. Then they eventually moved to a fancier, schmancier neighborhood where the other German Jews were as McCullough Street off of North Avenue. For those who have an inkling of what I'm talking about. Uh, and So in other words, all your five German shoals located there. The Reform Movement... Uh, which was very successful in Baltimore, uh, was successful up to a point. As I said, um, it's, it's a very complicated story. I mean, I'm, I'm really dumbing this down. Because you had a lot of people, people don't know this, in the 1800s, early 1900s, who were members and officers in the Frum Show and in the Reform Show. It's like, you know, inconceivable today, but had to do with being cousins and things like that. I'll say it again. They were important contributors and, and officers in a, in a Shomer Shabbos show, and also at the same time, they're officers in reform. It was a different time. And it's unique to Baltimore, really. It has to do with, with certain... There's an article by Marsha Rosenblatt all about this. Anyway, uh, so that being the case, what you have to understand... One second. Is that socially, all the German Jews were the same class, same social class, so... You had a lot of cousins and relatives. These people were stuck, these people reform. That's how it went. Uh, and when people married, you know, it was not, it was common that an Orthodox guy marries a reformed girl or a reformed guy marries an Orthodox girl. You, you had that because you want to marry somebody Jewish at that time and you want to marry somebody who makes a certain standard of living in the same social economic class. And it may be that the guy belongs to the other show, but that didn't stop it. This is like inconceivable today, you see? You have to know the reality on the ground 100 years ago. If anybody's the slightest bit interested in the uh, in this tribalism that I'm talking about, 
It's a very interesting article. I mean, a novel by Sidney Lauer. I think it was his name. Uh, Sidney something called, I think, The Chosen People. Published around 1910, 1920. It was an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a novel, you know. And, uh, uh, and the guy's reformed. But he knows Baltimore. You know, he grew up there. It was something in Hopkins. And you know, he just, you can see over there the, 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 the fault lines in the community. It's very interesting. Uh, but be that as it may, uh, you ended up that uh, all these German Jews moved their synagogues to the same neighborhood, uh, Bolton Hill, I guess. And uh, I've gone to these places when I do my bus tours once in a while in Baltimore. I used to do them before the, before the corona. And uh, there were three temples, three Reformed temples. And two Orthodox synagogues, and that's what you had. Uh, there was the uh, Baltimore Hebrew Congregation that was Reformed, and the Harsane was really Reformed, and the Oeb Shalom was really Reformed. And the two Orthodox was, you know, the Chizikamun and the Sheriff Israel. And there was no such thing as conservative at that time. And then in the other neighborhood was the Russian Shoals. Now, eventually, uh, Baltimore was, was a slave town. There was a big racist town. You know, it goes back to the old segregation this was a Jim Crow place. In other words, Baltimore and Maryland, whatever happened specifically in the Civil War, when the state was occupied by Abraham Lincoln's troops, uh, and the Bill of Rights was suspended. After the Civil War was over, Baltimore was definitely south of the Mason-Dixon line, and if we had segregation here, and uh, like I say, all these Jim Crow laws, and uh, in, in terms of housing and zoning, so the old uh, Sheriff Israel was on one side of a street, and the other side of the street was called the Negroes, you understand? And they're not allowed to cross over to the white section and vice versa. It was a weird, that was the old Baltimore. Uh, and that's where the sh they, they built their second shoal. It was already a little bit less from, uh, but still from. And, you know, they didn't have a great balcony and so forth. And uh, that's when he went for another, I don't know, uh, 30 some years. Now, Later, like in the late twenties, uh, this is, I'm, I'm gonna say something that's funny, because you know, the reason I know this, and I'm gonna share this with you today because it's it's no good to something I'm gonna read. Uh, the reason I know this is many years ago I had to write a uh, I was commissioned by the yeshiva here to write a you might say like a formal bio of a Rav Ruderman, uh, my Rosh Hashiva, and one of the things I had to do was you know do research. And so, in the case of Baltimore, Maryland, one of the things you want to do is you want to go through the old news, Jewish newspapers that you call the Jewish Times, which in its heyday was a big paper and came out once a week. And um, I may have mentioned this here or not. And the guy who was the, the editor at that time, Jewish Times, Phil Jacobs, who's a friend of mine, was kind enough to let me have all the physical issues so I could go read through the whole business from the 1920s to I don't know when. Samam read the whole Gunsa business in Baltimore, and you can see like a panorama uh, in front, uh, passing before your eyes. Because that time, every shoal and every detail was like a paper of record, you know. And you'll see over there, it said, the Sheriff of Israel announces that the neighborhood's going bad. This is what they say. I remember from verbatim, he said, oh, the Negroes are moving into the neighborhood, therefore we got to build a new synagogue somewhere else. That's, that's the old racist Baltimore of yesteryear. That's how people talk in the 1920s. And uh, so they built a third location, the current location, now, uh, which is out now, the current Shulman, Glen Avenue. 
So by the standards of Baltimore at that time, that was way out in the sticks. Not today, but way out in the sticks. And it's just interesting. You have a very from shul that's moving all the way out, very far away, in an area where there aren't a lot of very from Jews, and certainly not German Jews, but it's a choice they made anyway. So it's, it's, it's not a German move, it's an American move. And the Adler family bought a house all the way out there, uh, which is still there, um, in the upper, this is all Upper Park Heights. And therefore, you had a situation where by the 30, by the late 20s, they built a shul. And by the 30s, um, you had an interesting situation in which all the way at the end of town, in the farthest reaches, uh, northwest, uh, you had um, a, a, a growing Jewish neighborhood. People are moving there. Uh, most of them are not from. But they're still traditional, as their parents went to Orthodox synagogues. And therefore, they did. And the only shul in the area is the Sheriff Israel shul, which, formally speaking, is supposed to be a very from place. But you walk into shul on Shabbos in a week, and most of the people that are davening are not exactly Shomer Shabbos. Uh, some are, but not, not exactly. So it was a funny situation. And uh, Nathan Adler was one of the people who helped design the synagogue. It's all these stories with it. I don't want to get into that. And uh, mind you, this is a show with a mikvah. I mean, you know, the Lord's Talk show. And uh, this brings us to the 1930s. Now, by that time, let's say 1933, 1934, at that time, uh, how should I put it? The disintegration of the traditionalists of the Orthodox was in full swing because there was no chinuch. The uh, day school that I told you was founded up to the sixth grade, which still taught in Yiddish, uh, a f- you know, was attended by a few, but not by a large number of people in town. And second of all, even if you send your kid to that, and he went up to the 6th or 7th grade, whatever it was at that time. Then you go to public school. So, once you go to public school, you're going to be heavily influenced in that direction. It doesn't have to be. You know, I can name certain famous rabbis that went to public school and remained from. But that's the exception, not the rule. Okay? And so, the general direction, in any event, was to weaken the orthodoxy. Because, you know, if you're not sensitive to Torah, if you're not learned, say put it this way, you don't understand these issues. They seem crazy to you. You know, Chab, uh Yeah, I will tell you. I read the thing because uh, Rafi Adler, his brother, wrote, wrote, wrote a piece in some magazine. Uh, uh, what do you call it? When they built the shul, so Nathan Adler was in charge of the building committee or something like that, and he did not tell anybody that they're including a mikvah. I mean, you know, that was, was in the plans because they're already holding by people's a mikvah. What are you, crazy? You see what I'm saying? If you If you're not sensitized to the importance of this, you look like you're nuts. I remember this when in my youth. You know, you tell somebody tires mishpacha, they're like, well, "What are you talking about?" You know, it's like, "What's wrong with a bath?" Uh, you, you take things for granted today because most of the people listening to the podcast, I imagine, are someone on the younger side, and they've grown up in a different world. I'm trying to take you back, take off your glasses of the year 2022, and put on the glasses of the year 1922. Even in a relatively traditional town like Baltimore which still had Rabbonim and all the rest of it, but it, the, 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 the overall trend was moving away from Yiddishkeit, slowly but surely. And uh, the old rabbi died in 1933. And the Near Israel Yeshiva started in 1933, which is the beginning of a counter-trend. 
but a very small one. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I talked about Rabbi Ruderman, who is my Rosh Shiva. And um, this is the, the Zitzin Laban for what I wanted to talk about today uh, at Jonathan's request, because uh, this is where Rabbi Schwab comes in. It's kind of interesting. Because uh, Rabbi Shimon Schwab, of course, uh, was from Germany. Now, I'm going to say this, I'll repeat it again later on. By the time I'm talking about the 1930s, most of the Jews in this German show were not German, they were American. They may have come from German background. Some yes, some no. They're American. Rabbi Schwab was a Yaki. He was a German Jew from Frankfurt, as you know. And, um, and he grew up in the interwar period. And he was one of that generation of German Jews, which is very, very interesting, which after the First World War uh, was attracted to go to Litvish Yeshivas. Uh, instead of going to university for a PhD and all that, although there are plenty that did that too. We spoke before about W.T. Hoffman and, uh, you know, what's his name, the three day age. But you also had a group of guys, including Rabbi Shimon Schwab, who said, I want to go to, 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 to you know, to Teleslobok, wherever he went to Mir. You know, as a German Jew, he had a passport. He could go to Poland and to Lithuania. Poland and Lithuania were like at a war with each other. But if you're German, you can, you can, you know, go from Germany to Lithuania, go back to Germany, and then go to Poland. So he could learn that she was in this side of the border and she was in that side of the border. And he put his kachos into, um, into yeshiva education. Notice being, becoming a Talmud Chacham in the yeshivas of old, in uh, the interwar period. Uh, now, he, he's part of a whole trend. I think some of you will be familiar with the uh, fact that the Chavetz Chaim wrote a public letter saying to the German Jews, you know, send your sons to our yeshivas, basically. You know, welcome home. Um, and it's an interesting trend. There's what to talk about over there. So Rabbi Schwab is part of that. So he's a German Jew from Frankfurt, super. He yeah, grew up in the Hirschkehilla, but he got uh, litvishized to some degree uh, in his uh, education, his higher education. And I've mentioned before, I mentioned it a lot of times, one of the interesting things about the institution of Lithuanian yeshiva is that from early on, it became like a missionary movement which it still is. Notice people still today have the desire, the urge, and they carry it out to go to a new town and start a yeshiva there or some something like that, a kolel, or, you know, call what you want. Uh, but if they could, they try to make it a yeshiva. You know, in the South, in Canada, in this place, in that place, in South America, if they can, in South Africa, it's, it's, it's still a, a, a um, what's the right word? An impetus. You understand? Uh, so still Johnny Appleseed to spread the, 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 so the yeshiva. What it means is that it was already recognized by early 20th century that the only institution that has a chance to uh, perpetuate uh, a real Yiddish guide is the Litvish yeshiva type model. Uh, now the Hasidim is their own story, but I'm talking about outside of that. And even the Yekis, you know, were, were moving in that direction in the 1920s and 30s. And so Rabbi Schwab when he got a smich and all the rest of it, came back to Germany with the idea of starting what he hoped would be one day a Litvish yeshiva in Bavaria. Now, that didn't work out because in the 1930s, Hitler came to power, and uh, he was in some little town, Aikenhaus or wherever, in Bavaria, and the little towns were the worst places as far as the Nazis is concerned in the 1930s. The big cities was bad enough under Hitler, but it was a little bit a little bit attenuated. In the small communities, especially in these super-Catholic areas, 
there was vicious anti-Semitism. And so there ain't no chance of a yeshiva taking it off in the, in the circumstances of the mid-1930s. Uh, all of which means that by the time you get to, by the time he's 26, 27 years old, he said, what's going to be the future? Um, what's going to be the future? Uh, you didn't have to be a prophet to see that, you know, if you don't exactly know the Holocaust is coming, you know something bad is coming. Okay? And Rabbi Schwab met Leo Jung, uh, who was in vacation in Switzerland. And they're all related. I don't know exactly how Jonathan could probably tell you. They're all related through Yekishism back in old Germany. I'm serious. They're all related. And Rabbi Schwab had written a book called uh, Heimkehr, which, come on home, I guess you'd call it a Teshuvah, return. And it's very interesting, by the way. I'll tell you what I mean. Uh, he... He, what he called, uh, how should I say this? I'll call it the crisis of Hersheyanism. Okay? Uh, Sans Ravelers was in the 1800s, and everybody knew he was a great man. His very specific exact model of term, Derek Heretz, with the Torah in Derek Heretz, the Derek Heretz playing a very important part. The Torah coming first, but the Derek Heretz playing a very important part. Uh, is always controversial. He insisted it's the right way to go, and look what the community built up, all the rest of it. But I'm talking about within the Yekeshev world, there started to be, especially after the 1920s, after the First World War, you know, questions like, is this the right way to go? Because we produce day schools with, um, uh, what's the right word, observant Balabatim, but we don't have any big Torah knowledge, and that's, a, that's not a little flaw, it's a big flaw. Hirsch never made yeshiva, whether they attempt to do so. And you get into these arcane questions in German Jewry about the legitimacy of term Derek Heretz. I'm talking about from within the Machina. I'm not talking about non-from or this, that, the other. I'm talking about from within the Machina. Okay? And Rabbi Schwab, by, by, by rejecting Derek Heretz and going to Litvisha yeshivas and making a statement. You get what I'm saying? If you're a German Jewish boy and instead of going to college, when high school is over, you go to Lithuania or to Poland uh, and you spend five, ten years over there. I mean, you're making a countercultural statement, right? So uh, he comes from that attitude. And the Hersheyanism was always perceived, I wouldn't say correctly, but it was perceived as the Derek Harris would, would, would involve a very high uh, respect for German culture. European culture, particularly German culture. You know, Hirsch has the, all these things about Schiller, the poet, and all the rest of it. Now, I understand within the 19th century, you know, it, it worked and it was necessary for, for where things were in German Jewry at that time. The question is, does it, does it play over into the 20th century? That is a question we have down till today. How much value do you give to a non-Jewish culture, non-Torah culture? Uh, do you simply say, you know, Toru Parnosa and not Torum Derek Heretz to vulgarize it, you know, just in making a living? Or do you actually, are you interested in uh, in outside culture? Again, assuming that it doesn't clash with Torah culture. You know, we're talking about from people over here. So it's a complex and very interesting questions. And let's put it this way. When Hitler comes to power and is supported by the German people and they undertake the 
uh, various persecutions that they did of the Jews in the 1930s. Now, it wasn't a Holocaust yet, but they're certainly driving the Jews out of all areas of German culture. This is Goebbels, and the kind of thing you can see if you're interested, if you go to the U.S. Holocaust Museum, they burned all the books that were written by Jews, they kicked the Jews out of the movies, the music, all the rest of it. And so it could be interpreted. And Rabbi Schwab, as a young man, did write a book in which he basically said like this, you know, this is Minash I'm showing you, that our respect for German culture was just a mistake, and that everybody should give up all that German junk. He's living in Germany, mind you. And heck with Torah der Herz, it should just be Torah only. Okay? Torah only. What's really interesting is that the Breuer guys were all angry at this, because how can you criticize anything from a Hirsch, who's a greater person than this guy? Uh, and Rav Schwab would admit that, but nevertheless, he said, facts are facts. Look, look, look around you. Wake up and smell the coffee. And I remember... If you read, this is a funny story, uh, 1934, 35, 36, what period are we talking about? Uh, that the Hersheans in Frankfurt, you know, Breuer and the others, they hired a student in their yeshiva, because they still had this small Breuer's yeshiva going on. Uh, Jacob Katz, who became the famous professor in Hebrew, the big historian, Jacob Katz, who was from Hungary. But he was studying over there in the yeshiva and going to college at the same time, going for a PhD in sociology, as it were. And they said, we want you to write a counter book against this Schwab guy to defend Term Derek Hertz. I think the thing that's funny that the Hershians would ask a guy who's like, let's put it this way, a left-wing orthodox, if anything, to, to write a book to defend Hersch against or Schwab. But such is life. Anyway, uh, all this shows you, and let me put it this way, this stamped him as, you know, a right-winger, hushkafically, within the world at that time. And that was a problem because there's no future in Germany, so you want to get out and, and go somewhere. If you're Rabbi Schwab, your training is to be a rabbi. Where are you going to get a job as a rabbi? Uh, he met Leo Young, who was the, among the most influential rabbinim in America. He had that big ritual in, in New York. And uh, he was very influential. And... He basically said something along the lines, the only show that's even possible, Shach to the Parsha, would be the one in Baltimore. They don't pay a lot, but the one in Baltimore. So I know uh, the people in that show, and I know Nathan Adler and the others, and you know I'll recommend them you know, to take a look at you. Now, Jonathan Adler sent me a letter here. I'm looking, dated July 1, 1936, from Rabbi Schwab to Nathan Adler. Uh, it's really cool. And I want to read it to you because it's in English. Because Rabbi Schwab, you know, uh, uh, somewhere along the line, said like this, if I'm going to have a future outside of Germany, I better pick up English. Because it's going to be in England or America or someplace like that. You know? And he says over here, so I'm, I'm, I'm reading you a private letter. Nothing wrong with it. Uh, and it says, Dear Mr. Adler, Nero Yoyer, the undersigned, that's Rabbi Schwab talking, the undersigned has the honor to apply to you in the following matter, and so beg your attention in relation to an affair concerning the Jewish Orthodox community in Baltimore, of which you are the chairman. Now, he was the chairman of the Orthodox Jewish community in Baltimore, but here's somebody who doesn't know English and is learning English, and it's a little awkward. He's trying to work his way through English. I mean, I get it. As your synagogue is now looking uh, around because of a spiritual leader, is now looking something because of a spiritual leader, I take heart 
to consult you, therefore, and to represent myself before you. I'll say it again. This is written by somebody using a dictionary. He doesn't know English so well. But he was very educated. Though I am uh, presently in a very good position, for I have here a large rabbinical district and a lot of important tasks and no economical matters lead me to leave now to my actual employment. Nevertheless, I need to live between Lomde Torah and to educate the young people for our eternal holy ideals. So I want to move, you know, to America and to Baltimore to be among Lomde Torah and educate young people ideas. Interesting. Uh, these two wishes are impossibly fulfilled here in this time by various arguments, especially in consequence of the permanent immigration of Jews from Germany. In other words, I don't want to get political over here, but we got the Nazis. Enclosed this letter, I give you an exact description of my life and my career in Hebrew. So that I don't have in front of me. And also some copies of several smichas I received from celebrated rabbis in Poland. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Leo Young in New York and, Rabbi, and Jacob Rosenheim in London will certainly uh, with, write, about, write to you about me. Okay, so in other words, I, they're my, um, you know, uh, what's the right word, sponsors or something. So I can refer to their letters of introduction, though it is not quite fair to praise myself. I will, however, not, I will not forget to mention that I can speak fluently Hebrew, Yiddish, and also English. And I want to join, I want to join that my principal um, talent, yeah, principal talent is the theory, I guess, and to preach as uh, as well as to teach, okay, uh, but also to manage the religious education of Jewish pupils. So this is how he's representing himself. Finally, surely my family's well known to you. I'm a grandson of Mr. Abraham Erlanger in Lucerne, whose wife was a kinswoman of you. So I told you they're all related. May I ask you together you would be uh, may I ask you whether you'll be so kind as to invite me for a disobliging visit? I like that term. In other words, a probably, you know, w w w but you can say no, you know, it's disobliging. I'm willing to pay the important portion of the expense money for traveling all by myself. For in case of a voyage to America, I must come back before the autumn festivals. Therefore, I'm very much obliged to you for a soon answer. And I beg your pardon about the trouble I am giving forth. Yours very sincerely, Rabbi Schwab, or Simon Schwab. Which I think is a very interesting. They, they still kept the letter. Uh, now, uh, that, of course, is a historical document because what happened was he came over to uh, Baltimore and he had a proba and then he and then uh, and he was elected. So they saved his life because this is 36. Another two, three years, the Holocaust was on. And so um, the guy, so Nathan Adler more or less pushed it that they should accept him, which is why I was always very close to the family. That's why Jonathan wanted me to talk about it. Uh, so Rabbi Schwab moved here with his family in the late 36. So think about that. Late 36, he got 37, 38. America came into war December 30, uh, 41, as you know. So late 36, 30, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, those years. Uh, 
Rabbi Schwab Shabbos up in Baltimore. It's a new rabbi that shares Israel. And, you know, he took, he, he took um, very careful to learn English, be able to preach there as well as the Germans. And it was just a very interesting kind of uh, phenomenon. Now, there's a famous incident that everybody here in Baltimore knows, maybe the Schwab people know, uh, the people who follow his biography. And that is, as I told you before, the synagogue was in a funny situation. It's like a branch of the downtown, uh, Main Shoal, but the branch is growing bigger and bigger. The vast majority of people who dive into the Shoal are not so from. Therefore, they are not members, because in order to be a member, a full voting member, you got to be a Shomer Shabbos. And most of them wouldn't even claim to be a full full Shomer Shabbos. Uh, this was the Baltimore that I remember. He had Orthodox Shoals all over the place, the vast, vast majority of whom the people were not from, were not observant. Now, the Rabbanim of the old generation, this is my understanding, that's all I can ever share with you. The Rabbanim of the old generation, the best they could do in Baltimore was to to think in the following terms. I'm trying to locate this in a larger picture. Uh, if you grew up in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you perceived Jewish affairs in a 19th century lens. And so... The threat was other forms of Judaism, reform and conservative, shall we say. And that was a big problem. You make a reform temple, oh, it's terrible. People think they're Jewish and it's not. It's just terrible. And uh, how do we fight? How do we, how do we go against that? And when the conservative popped up, they said it's just another form of reform, you know. Uh, so how do we stop that? Now, it, every town is different. I'm talking about Baltimore 100 years ago. It seems to me that the Rabbanim who were here, who had any kind of say whatsoever, and there weren't many, but there were a few, they were trying to hold the fort. Uh, listen closely to what I'm going to say. By the time we're talking about 1920s, let's say, the reform had reached its peak and plateaued. There were those three congregations, the Baltimore Hebrew and the Ob Shalom and the Harsana, yeah, three congregations, and they were big and doing fine. But that's it. You know, once they, they weren't getting any new converts, let's put it this way, to reform. Very, very few Eastern European Jews joined the show. I mean, a little bit, you know, a little bit. There were the ones that made millions. Very little. So, in general, the reform movement, if you know the history of reform Judaism, they were well aware that they had plateaued in the 1920s and they weren't going anywhere. So, if you're from, you basically look like this. Listen, whoever is it, you know, whoever has has switched to reform has switched to reform. And that's it. And, and and now nobody else is. The other problem was conservative. The conservative shows were spreading all over America in the 1920s and 30s. It was a real problem. Um, why you and everything? They're going crazy, you know? Because show after show was switching to conservative. And this intensified in the 40s and 50s. But it was still full swing in the 1920s and 30s. Now listen very closely. Baltimore never had any conservative shows. Now I have to modify that. The Chizikamuna, which I mentioned before, uh, which was one of the old, old two German Orthodox synagogues, identified with the reform, with the conservative movement, um, which is why they're in a funny situation. They're one of the founding synagogues of the JTS, and they're also one of the founding synagogues of the OU. <laughs> uh, and 
they certainly had, you know, inclination in that direction, but they never quite did it. If you went to the Chizik Moon in the 1920s and 30s, I mean, everything was according to Din. You know what I mean? They had separate seating, they had Orthodox sitter, didn't have an organ, and nothing like that. Uh, the rabbi was from the Jewish Theological Seminary, but they were in the extreme right of the conservative movement. So, if you're Rabbi Schwartz or somebody like that, one of the big responsible Orthodox rabbis in Baltimore, and let's say, for example, it's 1930, you say, you know, it, 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 the the has not hit Baltimore. Whatever we're doing, we're doing is right, because the proliferation as was happening at that time of modern Orthodox synagogues is like stealing the clothes of the conservative. So it's not happening that way, which is good. Um, there was another show, Beth Tefillah, which also had a conservative rabbi, but really he was a Orthodox by Rosenblatt. And uh, he writes in his autobiography that when he came to the shul, the macher said like this, okay, we're hiring you, we're ready to go conservative. Just give us the green light. And he said, I didn't come here for that. <laughs> you understand? He wanted modern orthodox and not conservative. This was the politics of that time. I'm just trying to show you. You see? This was the politics of that time. But it meant that orthodoxy was quite anemic. And uh, even the former shows, like the, the sheriffs, all the rest of it, very anemic. The younger generation just moving slowly but surely to the left. People like Nathan Adler, who were very strictly religious and all that, and becoming more so, was the exception. Uh, so it's just an interesting era in um, in American history, in, in the history of Baltimore. By that time, Mr. Adler was already a successful salesman, and he joined the company, he was one of the board of directors, you know. He had, he, he had made it into American prosperity. But... Um, you know, most of the Orthodox people, even in that shul, were like on the Schwab side. Now, here comes this Rabbi Schwab from from uh, Germany. He's coming from a completely different dynamic. He's growing up in Germany in the first decades of the 20th century, in which, within Orthodoxy, things are moving to the right uh, because of the proximity to the Litvish yeshivas and things like that. In general, within Orthodoxy, the most dynamic elements were uh, pretty stark and, and militant, moving to the right. A lot of this is associated with the Aguda. The Aguda movement uh, had this effect in, in different countries, had different effects. And in Germany in the 20s and 30s, had an effect of trying to create a dynamic um, right-wing uh, movement, uh, movement to the right, uh, more religious, uh, more Torah, more Shmir, uh, uh, more Chumras and things like that. It's interesting. So you come to somebody coming from a very different uh, place, and when he comes to Baltimore, Rabbi Schwab, so things had reached the point that the really from was a tiny element. I think they say it was eight or nine or ten people in the shul that were fully Shomer Shabbos, so therefore they only had eight or nine people there vote. And if he was elected, he was elected by eight or nine people. Maybe you have 150, 250, I don't know how many families in there that are that don't vote. And they say, we're providing most of the money for the show through our contributions, which was true. And therefore, we want to change, if not the official constitution, the unofficial constitution, make it that everybody here, that this show, everybody who's a member, should be a full member in voting, which means we want to transform this show into a modern Orthodox synagogue. And I'm using the term modern Orthodox as the term was 100 years ago, not like it is today. So in other words, it'll be a show basically not from. But it'll be Orthodox. And uh, as I understand, Nathan Agar was actually... Let's put it this way: He he wanted this guy elected as the rabbi because he he you know he'll he'll fight against that, 
and Rabbi Schwab poskins, you know, because he's the rabbi, that uh, then you can't do it. Uh, they have to, that they should retain the law, official or unofficial, that only somebody's Shomer Shabbos can vote. Well, everybody left, which left the shul tiny, you know, with 10 members or something like that. And those years, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, must have been very interesting because the shul was obviously broke. And you have very small oilam um, over there, uh, as you would imagine. And um, let's put it this way. Um, he must have got a very low, uh, low salary. And I know he taught in there Israel a little bit, but, you know, that, that's not money. And, you know, it's rough. On the other hand, on the other hand, at least, let's put it this way, at least in Shul I know I'm on safe ground. My problems are Chitsoni sticker problems. Parnosa, things like that, growing the Shul, you know, paying the bills. Uh, but I don't have to worry that inside the Shul are people who want to undermine the Orthodoxy. Uh, so that's the, the choice he made. And, uh, and that's where the Shul stayed from. Now, it so happened, you had a period of a couple years where the finances must have been really uh, shaky. Uh, after a couple years, one second, I just got interrupted. Um, you know, some, let me, uh, just give me a minute while I change this. Okay, I can pick up from there. Um, what was I talking about? So here we're talking about the years after he got elected, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41. It's a very interesting period in Baltimore history in general. By the way, the group that seceded built a shul a block away, uh, Beth Jacob. And now looking in hindsight, that shul had about 40 years less, 35, 40 years of a, of a run when they were a hot item. And then they went down the tubes. doesn't exist anymore. Shul doesn't, went out of business. Uh, it's like a, a flash in the pan. They had a good 30, 40 years and then, then not. <laughs> it's just interesting. Uh, but whatever the case is, uh, here, the point I want to get across is this. The guy like Rabbi Schwab, they had to adjust uh, to Americans. You know, people say like this, well, he was in Germany, went to a Yekish show. It's, it, 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 it's not Yekish anymore. You understand? Uh, it's Americans. I mean, the, 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 the Minig was German, and the tunes and the, the, the Nusach and everything is German, but the people are American. Okay. And that's, that's very interesting. He knew this 100%. And things you take for granted today, you know, as being part of Baltimore or New York, wherever you live, weren't around at that time. And uh, it seems, best like he's very sensitive to understanding the American reality and the type of people who were his Balabatim and, and people with whom he interacted, who are not by any means all from German background. Uh, but he was uh, smart enough to know that um, you don't push things, let's put it this way, uh, there's the basics. There's Shabbos, Kashras, Tarsim, and Mishpacha, things like that. Uh, those are the things you have to be rigid about. Uh, and things like, you know, other things that we talk about, you know, how you dress and how you this, and then you have to be, uh, uh, what's the right word, flexible about. You understand? Because we're trying to build up Yiddishkeit in Baltimore. And uh, you want to be a turn on and not a turn off. It's very. And he was very good at that. Uh, his son, if you read this online my, in my wife's magazine, they, they published it. Moses Shabbat, very nice description of his time in Baltimore, the twenty years or so, twenty two years. He was a rabbi here. Uh, 
the show eventually grew back because German refugees came here from Hitler. Like, in, not under his circumstances. Rabbi Schwab got here uh, probably under special visa. Uh, this is something <laughs> that uh, many people don't know. America used to have unrestricted immigration. And then in 1924, they had restricted immigration. So that means that it wasn't so easy to get in this country. And they did it on a racialist basis, which means, without going into how they did it, it's an interesting story by itself. I have a podcast on this. I mean, a a YouTube somewhere on this from a while ago. Uh, But I'm talking about the Johnson Act of 1924. So what they basically said was that every year is going to be a quota of how many people can get into this country, and it's going to be based on your country of origin. So if it's a country like England, whatever, you have like 50,000, 60,000 a year. Uh, If it's Lithuania, you have 2,000 a year. You know what I mean? If you have Poland, you have 2,000 a year. If it's China, you have one. (laughs) You know, one person. You see, that's how they did it. If it's Africa, you have one. That's the way they did it. So you say, there is immigration, but it's uh, uh, under quota system. It's controlled. So it's very hard for Jews to get in. Well, there was no such thing as a Jewish uh, quota, is whatever country you're in. Now, Germany is a Western country. And so the racists in America, the racialists, when they made these quotas up in 1924, if you told me you're coming from Germany, Germany is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, so to speak. You know what I mean? Uh, you're white. Uh, you're not Anglo, but you're Saxon. And uh, you're, and you're, chances are you're Protestant. So they didn't mind Germans coming in. So a German Jew, actually, uh, under the formal laws of the United States, who wanted to come into America in the 20s and the 30s, it shouldn't have been so hard because it was a fairly large German quota. I would imagine 50,000 a year. That's a nice number. Uh, but, you know, they, but if it's Jews, so this is the State Department, you know, they would put all kind of uh, tricks and shticks in the way to try to prevent, uh, if you're Jewish, to come. Um, it, it could happen, and, and obviously Jews didn't emigrate here. And without going through all the details, 1930s is a very complicated story because Roosevelt was the president, and at times he maintained strictly the State Department rules, and at other times he bent them. Uh, in the first administration, which was from 33 to 37, they enforced them very rigidly. And in the second administration, they bent them here and there, especially after Kristallnacht in 38 and 39. So there was a fair amount of German Jews that were allowed to emigrate in this country. But I just want you to know something. When the Congress passed that law, 1925, which was clearly designed against the Jews, uh, I mean, they, they, they didn't say it, but they more or less said it. So... Uh, when Congress passed that law, they put in an exemption for a rabbi or a clergyman, you know, a priest or a minister or something like that. So, let's say you're in a country, I'm just making this up, but this happened. Let's say the whole Lithuania has a, a quota this year of a thousand people, which is filled up instantly. And so, uh, Rabbi so-and-so can't get in. Let's say his name is Moshe Feinstein. He can't get in. If a congregation hires him as their clergyman, then he can get under special under special clause, a special exemption, which, by the way, is how Ramosha Feinstein came into this country, and later Byron Cutler and all the rest are under special clause. You're hired as a clergyman. That's how Rabbi Schwab got here, hired as a clergyman. You understand? So that bypasses a lot of the red tape. There's an article somewhere online you can find from Jonathan Sarna, who's the uh, big historian of American Jewry, uh, on this subject. I forget where, but uh, you know. 
he goes into all the nitty gritty details. You'd be surprised how many Rabbanim came to this country on that uh, uh, e- e- exceptional route. You know what I mean? Like bypassing the red tape. And it's interesting. You know, because one here, one there, they didn't care. They're worried about large numbers. So um, this is the second period, the second uh, uh, Roosevelt administration, because Rabbi Schwab came at the end of 36. So he's here during Roosevelt's second administration, 37, 38, 39, 40. By the way, he used to listen to Roosevelt. I, I saw this at Sunrise. He used to listen to Roosevelt on the radio to learn how to do proper English because Roosevelt is a fantastic speaker on the radio. Everybody knows that. You can listen to yourself. It's very interesting because he enunciates very well and he was just a natural at it and he had that upper class accent and he did not talk down to people. It's very, very interesting. You listen to Roosevelt's speeches and he uses, uh, you know, how should I put it? In a way that politicians don't today. He uses a high English, but in a very simple and direct form. So uh, it's it, it, it's it's quite interesting. But whatever the case is, uh, you started to get some German Jews coming to this country, and so some could join the show. You understand? In 37, especially 38, 39, 40, 41, before America entered the war, it, it, it was a greater immigration of German Jews. That's when most of your Breuer's types were able to, to make it to, to New York. You understand? in the later 30s, in the second Roosevelt administration. Because uh, Roosevelt, for his own reasons, was hot and cold, sometimes better, sometimes worse. And in the late 30s, you know, he pressured the State Department to be a little more lenient. Uh, at least the Jews from Germany. You know, they didn't look Hasidish or anything like that. So, you know, they weren't that repulsive. So they, they let him in. I mean, that, that that's how it went. It's quite a story. Now... Rabbi Schwab, I just, I can go on and on, I don't want to do that. I want to make a point or two. Rabbi Schwab, among other things, uh, was the first of this type of German Jew and all that, but uh, he's the first Agudist. That's the point I'm trying to get at. He kind of started the Aguda here, certainly in Baltimore, and 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 in American general. Uh, the Aguda... It, it you know was kind of unknown uh, in America at the time I'm talking about. If you were from, you were in the Mizrahi. Uh, that means that you were <sighs> religious. I mean, look at the map. Look at the, on, go online and look at the pictures of the convention of the Mizrahi rabbanim in America in the 20s and 30s. It's all these big rabbanim with long beards and all the rest of it. Looks like the Moetzid Dolia Torah. You know what I mean? And uh, the idea was, of course, you should build a Beretz Yisrael, and, and if possible, get a Jewish state, make it as firm as possible. And what's what's your what's your problem? Uh, the Zionist movement was tremendously um, popular among religious Jews from Eastern Europe. It was not so popular among irreligious Jews from Eastern Europe, interestingly, uh, but it was very popular among religious Jews of Eastern Europe, and among a small number of non-religious Jews. The small number of non-religious Jews held all the power. That was the funny part. Uh, and they used the masses of religious Jews, if I can say, you know, like, like cannon fodder or something like that. Uh, but, as I pointed out many times, the Zionist movement had done something no one else had ever done. Uh, notice they had deed, not just talk. Uh, starting with Herzl, they constituted international congresses of the Jewish people. Uh, claw Yisrael. No one ever seen a thing like that. And even if you tell me they didn't really represent anybody, it looked like they did 
And the Goyim took it, took it seriously. And the Goyim took it sufficiently seriously, as you know, that the British government made the Balfour Declaration and offered the Jews, in some sense or another, Eretz role during the after the First World War. Now, I know things screwed up, I get it, but I'm just saying, they weren't just talk. Uh, and in the 20s and 30s, they were actually slowly but surely building up Israel. Uh, what's the future state of Israel? Now, they made many mistakes, and they did all kind of bad things, which is quite true. And they certainly weren't from, and blah, blah, blah. But they were doing stuff. So you can understand that to be religious Zionist, I mean, that, you know, didn't, didn't seem like a tart did a sasri. Now, uh, the Aguda movement was started, as you know, just before the First World War, really after the First World War, uh, as a counter to that. The Aguda strove as an organization, not with great success, to portray themselves as like the true Zionist movement, the, the true movement of Jewish people. Um, and they try to capture the same charisma. So, for example, if you went to one of Canisius, which they didn't have that often, but they had some, so you would also see something, at least to a certain extent, that looked like a United Nations. Litvische, Hasidische, Polish, Hungarians, uh, Diakas, uh, British Jews. You see what I'm saying? All different types. You get it? All different types. And it's true, they're all Ashkenazi Jews and European, but you know, it, it gave a little bit of appearance of the, the whole Torah world, shall we say. You see? Uh, so within... So it's like an imitation of the Zionist movement, but in a from uh, flavor. Let's put it that way. But they never achieved anywhere near the kind of influence. And they were not taken seriously by the international community the way the Zionists were, obviously. So when Rabbi Schwab comes here, and he sees that whoever here is a religious a Zionist, the schools, the yeshivas, everybody, so I mean, he's like odd man out. Now Nathan Adler was the same way. For, for his reasons... Uh, you know, for for his, for his ways of seeing it, uh, he was a natural born Agudas from way back when. There aren't too many people in America like this who were ideologically sensitized to see Zionism as extremely objectionable from a religious basis, from a Ashkafa basis, even the religious Zionism. Uh, Baltimore was one of the places yet a few people, not many, a few people um, that saw things that way. Uh, but it's almost irrelevant in the sense the problem is not uh, Zionism or not Zionism. The problem is people just drifting out of Yiddishkeit. So I was saying before that the Rabbanim and others thought in terms of Reform and Conservative and they figured that they had built a dam so that Reform Judaism and Conservative Judaism shouldn't spread any farther into Baltimore. But it turns out that although it is true that reform and conservative was a problem, that wasn't the big problem. The big problem was the alienation of the masses of the children of traditional Jews from Yiddishkeit simply because they came up with public school and then they had no shaykhs to Yiddishkeit. They just drifted out. You understand? No, what we would call, generally speaking, just moving away. Just not keeping the Shemir Smiths anymore. So it doesn't matter whether you call it reform or this, that, and the other. Nobody's doing anything. That was the really gigantic wave, and that's Rabban we're not addressing. Uh, I mean, they spoke about it, but they, you know, we're addressing it head on. And the only now Rabbi Schwab, 
is coming from uh, Germany, where these ideological issues have been debated and sharply etched. And you have people like Isaac Breuer and the others, and they already see that the future lies with Chinuch, you know what I mean? Uh, Jews like Nathan Adler and the Cones and others, they were, you know, incohate. They saw this as is is something negative, but what? How can just a regular balabas do anything different in America? Create something different? Uh, nobody foresaw in the late '30s that within a few years you're going to have a tidal change in the United States of America because people like Byron Cutler and these others are going to show up, and uh, in fact, to use modern terminology, the good is going to take off. Um, you know those kind of institutions. Uh, so Rabbi Schwab was really uh, an outlier when he first came over here, but his particular show, the big machers like Adler didn't mind there. Uh, there, there, there was a, a sympathy to, with that kind of a good a type position, which I don't think you'd have in any other show, or hardly. Uh, it's just very interesting in that regard. And uh, I know Rabbi Schwab and uh, Henry P. Cohn, who I knew very well, they used to, they used to get the Aguda magazines from England, you know what I mean, where, where they still published ideological journals. There was no such thing in America. And uh, really put it as an outlier. Now, I'm going on and on. I want to make one point, because this is a huge topic, and I don't, I don't want to go on for hours. Uh, let me just say it right now. Nathan Adler died in 1948. So he lived through the the, the Second World War, and uh, th- then everybody was you know was busy with the Vada Tzol, all the rest of it. Uh, but listen closely. Uh, Jews are crazy, and you had Aguda, Mizrahi, Zionism fights all through World War II, which to some extent seems to us, looking back now in, in perspective, it's like you're arguing over the deck chairs on the Titanic. The whole Jewish ship is sinking, six million people are getting murdered, uh, and you're worried about this, that, and the other. But on the other hand, these are Dwarmum, the Barumashalolam, and it really mattered to the to the uh, people involved. And uh, you you did have a good uh, Zionist fights and politics uh, raging in this country among those who, who knew uh, during the Holocaust. I mean, that's what happened. I told you before, Rabbi Schwab was unusual. He was an Agudist. Most people didn't even know what that means when he came to America. Within a few years, he organized the Agoda Convention in Baltimore, which was in 40 or 41, I guess 41, in which you had all the big Agoda types and don't come to Baltimore. I have to talk about that sometime. And they had a very important big convention over here. Uh, the first thing he did was praise FDR. It's interesting. Uh, and uh, they tried to figure out what to do with this coming catastrophe. Now, they didn't come up with anything, uh, you know, no way to, to save the six million, to use modern terminology. But they were trying to be players. And what did emerge out of all this stuff is the Vat Hatzalah, which was a good plus Mizrahi. I just want to be clear about that. There they put their, their, their differences aside to try to save as many as they could. But at the same time, uh, there were uh, bitter fights uh, during 42, 43, 44, and 45, which is uh, really weird when you consider 6 million getting killed. The most famous or infamous of these fights had to do with what they call Yalde Tehran, the Tehran children, which means there were a bunch of Jewish kids who 
one way or another, uh, again, without going into details, one way or another got away from Hitler, they made it to Stalin, and because they were Polish and because of the politics at that time, Stalin let them out from Russia in 1943. And they moved to the next country over to Iran. And the Jewish agency, the Zionists, set up a whole reception center over there. And the question was, what are you going to do with all these kids? And um, many of them come from religious backgrounds, not all. And immediately, immediately they became a political football because the Jewish agency, which was run by Ben-Gurion, sent over Madrichim to take over these kids who were teenagers and stuff like that and and bring them to Israel. So that sounds good. But wait a minute. Bring them to Israel to be not from. So notice they send people from secular kibbutzim to be the Madrichim. And those children... Now, first of all, some of the kids were not from. Came from such a background. Uh, but some weren't. Some came from a from background. Of course, they'd gone through hell to, you know, to escape from Hitler and get through Stalin and all the rest of it. But they came from from background. And instead of uh, trying to... Uh, and these are Ud Mutzomayishas. You know, there's a, a tiny group of, of young people who are surviving the Holocaust in 43. They got out of Hitler's clutches. And uh, the ones, especially from religious families, one would have expected, their families were killed, one would have expected that now they should be uh, brought to Eretz Yisrael, no question about that, and put into from situations. Uh, perhaps I would say, you see, it's not so easy to implement this. Uh, do you want them to be adopted by from families and have relatives? Uh, do you want to put them in yeshivas and, and uh, you know, that sort of thing, or the seminaries? Uh, what exactly do you want to do with them? Well, since they're young people, all the different groups, the different Zionist groups, in other words, the secular Zionists, the religious Zionists, and the Agudo, all fought over what should happen to these kids. No, each one said, give us control of these kids. So it became, like I say, political footballs. And uh, what the Zionist movement wanted to do, what Ben-Gurion and those guys wanted to do was to say like this, let, let, which is the tactic they always use. Let's go by, um, uh, by political considerations, uh, democratic political considerations. Whatever the um, percentage of the... Uh, of the uh, members of parliament are uh, within Eretz Yisrael, and they had their own little parliament under the British, uh, that percentage should be how you divide up the kids. Meaning, the labor Zionists, which had, you know, let's say 55%, 60%, they should get 60% of the kids. The Mizrahi should get 10, 15% of kids. The Gouda should get, you know, since they're not in the parliament, get 2% of the kids, something like that. So they turned the whole thing into a party key, as they used to call it that time. Uh, which Lamaisa means you're sending most of these kids to a non-from environment, and these Madrichim already in in um, in Tehran uh, denied them kosher food, made them work on Shabbos, cut off their payas, you know, did all these disgusting things, uh, which were which which uh, they're going to raise hell about. The Mizrahi was going to raise hell, but then since it's the middle of the war, so they didn't like the fact they're going to raise hell. And then they, they they said, let's make a compromise. The whole thing got into a huge mess. And uh, the Agoda types, and may I say, Rabbi Herzog, the chief rabbi of Israel, 
all said that what's happening here is a is, is an unbelievable disgrace, and it's a um, it's a it's a, a disgusting power move on the part of the non from Zionists, and uh, they put out press releases and things like this, and uh, made a whole stink, which drove the Zionists crazy because here you are in the middle of World War II. They're trying to say we want a Jewish state. They they're claiming that they represent the Jews. Um, and that those Orthodox or other types that don't agree are marginal groups, and uh, they need good publicity. And here these guys are pushing bad publicity. Uh, like I said before, it's in the middle of Titanic, and uh, you know the whole Jews are going down, and you're uh, bringing the Zionist organization to disrepute. So uh, things really got uh, hot uh, back and forth in the in the uh, press, and. Here's the point I wanted to share with you. Um, so I see, in fact, I made a Xerox of it many years ago. I had it for many years. Um, in the middle of, of, of 43, in the Baltimore Jewish Times, which usually is very power of, and they never criticized the Orthodox, never criticized the Reform, you know, very power of. But they had some kind of a columnist who um, was a syndicated columnist, not in the Jewish Times, whose name apparently was David Deutsch. I don't know who he was. And... But he's a Zionist. Most of the American journalists in the 40s of these kind of newspapers were Zionists. You know, middle of the road, ZOA. And uh, he was really, uh, let's put it this way, the Aguda types really got under his skin. And he must have written an article. I don't have the article in front of me in which he said, you know, look at these disgusting people with pay us and the long black hats and this kind of, like the, from the old ghetto. And now they're causing trouble, all the rest of it. And, oh boy, uh so I have in front of me the letters to the editor uh, to the Jewish Times replies to David Deitch. Uh, readers take exception to article under heading of Heard in the Lobbies in last week's Times. So notice the newspaper, the, the magazine, is trying to be fair and they published uh, two letters uh, protesting against this kind of uh, anti-Aguda, anti-From type of journalism. Uh, one is a very long one, a very po uh, powerful and, and and screaming from Henry P. Cohn. I don't have time to do that now. Maybe some other time. And the other one is from Rabbi Schwab, who I would read you again. I would read you this letter. This I don't think anybody knows about this. So I'm sharing with you an uh, unknown uh, source. And uh, look at the very dignified tone that he writes in. That's what I wanted to bring out. Uh, it says in June of '43. Dear, this is a letter to the editor for Rabbi Schwab. Dear Sir, I am sorry to note that in the last issue of the Jewish Times, contrary to your usual high standards of inner Jewish tolerance, you have seen fit to open your columns to an article by which many of your Orthodox readers feel both humiliated and insulted. I am referring to a piece entitled Religion Runs Amok by David Deutsch, dealing with the infamous Tehran children scandal. I dare not lower myself to oppose or criticize remarks, ridiculing, as he does, quote, long coats, corkscrew car curls, and attractive beards, unquote, and the like. But I cannot help to be seriously concerned about how profoundly this columnist is influenced by the anti-Semitic phraseology of Goebbels. <laughs> Mr. Deitch imputes to the Agudas Israel to tell those wretched people war orphans you, quote, you'll put on a kapata and sit on a bench studying the Talmud all day long, or we'll send you right back to the Nazis, quote-unquote. 
which of course is, you know, pure bogus. I trust the majority of your intelligent readers abhor utter falsehood and odious statements like those dished out in the above-mentioned piece of writing. They prefer rather to know the true facts and to read sober opinions based on honest judgment. I therefore beg of you to make available to your readers the following article as it appeared on the front page of the world-renowned, strictly neutral Anglo-Jewish Gazette, the Jewish Chronicle of London, which is not a front paper, of May 7, 1943, which is an unbiased account of the real facts. The truth is that the Agudath Israel, guided by the greatest living authorities of the Torah today, fights for the religious education of the Polish war orphans in Palestine, along with the chief rabbi and all the other religious elements of the Jewish agency, notice the Mizrahi, including the Mizrahi and including Miss Henrietta Zold. Henrietta Zold was the head of the youth Aliyah. She's from Baltimore originally. She's a famous person. Uh, against those radical and anti-religious elements who unfortunately still wield so much influence in our holy land, here's truly Rabbi Simon Schwab, President of Baltimore Branch, I go to Israel of America. Now, uh, it's, a, it's well written. It's a high tone. The reason I say this is, compare this to the stupid things you get in the comment section, you know, when you see the world or one of these things. These guys just, uh, you know, uh, barf <laughs> their, their comments. It's, it's so ridiculous. Um, now, I've gone too long. Let me just uh, say that uh, they, they were able to build a shul back up uh, in the 40s. But what's more important is that uh, Rabbi Schwab and Nathan and the others uh, played very important roles in the 1940s, maybe the most important roles in uh, building up the TA, which was the day school, and the Beis Yaakov, which they started in, in, in that era. Uh, Beis Yaakov didn't finish till the uh, 12th grade till the 50s. As I mentioned a couple a month ago or whatever, uh, these were visionary things because once you had a situation in Baltimore, Maryland, where you have K through 12, so there's no public school. And if you're a boy, you even go past that, if you want to, to yeshiva, you know, to near Yisrael or something like that, uh, then you've created your cocoon. <laughs> you understand? Then you can create your controlled environment in which you can have American kids born and raised in Baltimore or wherever who, are, who have their education and formative years entirely within a from set, uh, setting. And uh, basically, that put the kibosh on the non from because they were not able to um, attract to their institutions and eventually their synagogues uh, new members from their own group. The, uh, their own grandchildren, you know, you know, just opted out of all Jewish association whatsoever, as was true of the modern Orthodox of that era. Uh, so they couldn't replenish themselves from their own ranks, they can only sort of, uh, what's the right word, you know, in a parasitical way, you know, uh, replenish their ranks by winning over kids from from families to, you know, their way of thinking. Uh, once uh, that was no longer possible, once the from, led by people like Abishwab and the Adlers, uh, set up an entire self-contained system for boys and girls, uh, then slowly but surely the death knell uh, began to be uh, uh, rung for 
these non-firm institutions, which one by one are going down the tubes. I'm talking about in Baltimore as well as elsewhere. So in that regard, some of the seminal uh, uh, causes for uh, huge mega events that affect us today in year 2022 can be traced back to the 1930s and the 1940s. Uh, I know I've gone a little bit too long, but anyway, I wanted to, uh, you know, uh, thank to, uh, uh, what's the right word, to acknowledge uh, Jonathan and Jonathan Adler and uh, say this by way of, uh, of a few words, that this was the era in which his father grew up. Let's put it this way, the formative years, because his father was born in the late 20s and uh, tried to give a little bit of a, of a handle on that. With that, I wish you all a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.